Save big money now on new siding from LP Smart Side at Menards. Update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre-finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin-Williams factory finish paint warranty that means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP Smart Side today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. This is Rashawn Evans, and you're listening to the No Nonsense Podcast. Welcome into No Nonsense, a Tennessee Titans podcast, your place to go for on-demand Titans coverage that is 100% free of the nonsense that we always see in sports talk these days. I'm Luke Worsham, joined by the other two hosts of No Nonsense, Matthias Wadner and Will Lomas. We are here to recap, unfortunately, not just a game, but a season for the Titans because the Titans 2020 season is now over. They lost 20-13 to to the Baltimore Ravens on Sunday in the wildcard round of the playoffs, bringing the season to an end far short of when just about anyone, I think, A, you know, perhaps before the season began, expected it to, uh, and then certainly probably far sooner than it, it should have. We're going to get into everything. Typically what we do after the season ends is we take a couple, we'll do a recap episode, and then we'll take a couple weeks off. We're going to delay the couple weeks off because there's just so much to get into looking ahead of the offseason, looking back at the 2020 season that we're not going to be able to get it all in in one episode. So we'll be back, obviously, today, the episode you're listening to. Next week, we will have an episode for you as well, and then we'll take a couple of weeks off after that to rest up now that the season is done. We've also got Mike Herndon for you on the show today. We know, based on the survey we took a month or so ago, that he is one of everybody's favorite guests. He's certainly one of ours. So we're going to have him on in just a bit to talk about everything, uh, every major topic with this team. And there's a lot of them, guys. So let's start, though, with the Ravens game in particular. Takeaways from that game, what went wrong, what, what could have gone better, and why are we sitting here doing a season recap instead of previewing another playoff game? Well, uh, it, a lot went wrong. A lot went wrong. And, and I think the most surprising part of it all was it was mostly the offense's fault because the defense honestly didn't play as poorly as I and probably many others uh, expected. Uh, they only gave up 20 points. Yeah, they had a couple of plays where it was just infuriating and they had a couple drives like that. Uh, especially that long Lamar Jackson touchdown run, I think it was like 50 yards. Uh, I think it was on third down. I, I, I don't, uh, I don't actually remember, but I think it was, and that that was infuriating. But I mean, if you would have told me before the game that the Titans would have held the Ravens' offense to to 20 points, I would have told you, fantastic, we probably won the game. But that didn't happen because the offensive line wasn't able to get any push in the run game whatsoever. Uh, Derrick Henry looked the most tentative I think he's been the entire the entire season. Uh, granted, he didn't get a lot of help from, from his offensive line, but he missed a, a good amount of holes himself. 
uh, and, and Tannehill and the passing offense just just they weren't able to to carry the team to victory like they have so many times before this season. And I think a lot of that was due to Corey Davis being ineffective and also getting injured injured in the second half of that game, and then the the wide receiver depth. Uh, getting tested uh, and Tannehill not playing at the MVP level that he did for uh, a lot of the season. So it, it sucked. It, it, uh, I, I was pretty depressed after the game, but like this is kind of what I expected. I, I, this team had a lot of flaws, uh, especially on the coaching staff with, with a lot of the coaching decisions as well. And it, they, they just seemed like a one-and-done playoff team. And, and that's exactly what ended up happening. I'm not happy that it happened. Uh, but, I, but I think a lot of people, myself included, kind of saw the signs. Uh, it, it doesn't make the season a failure, but it definitely leaves you with, with something to be desired going forward. Yeah, I, I, I think the best way I can describe it is I took my wife and my sister-in-law to the Titans game and when we were walking back, when we were in the car, I was just kind of in a state of shock, and it was just very strange and surreal. But the best way I could describe it to him is I wasn't, I wasn't upset because they lost. Like I, I, you know, you didn't want them to lose, but you lose in the playoff to a good team, to a guy who was, you know, their quarterback was MVP last year. He made some exceptional plays that were the difference in that game. And they were just huge game-breaking plays that we normally see from Derrick Henry. But what was the most disappointing and stunning and confusing that that really kind of left me speechless was for the first time in, you know, the 2020 season, it was Mike Vrabel, the head coach, and Arthur Smith, offensive coordinator, letting down Mike Vrabel, the defensive coordinator. Uh, for the first time all season, the defense looked like they were ready to go. They had two, they had two plays or three plays or you know something along those lines where they slipped up and gave up a big play. Obviously, like Matisse was saying, the third down run for a touchdown was very deflating. But for the most part, I mean, they got five sacks, which was basically basically the equivalent of a third of the season uh, over what they'd done. And then, you know, they got an interception early. They they looked. For the most part, especially against the running back, like running game, they looked good. They were making good fits. You know, the the guys in the middle were doing their job. Guys like Brooks Reed were were doing enough. Uh, Rashawn Evans and you know uh, David Long were both making plays from linebacker in the run. They were playing the option extremely well. Desmond King had a big game that nobody will ever talk about because the Titans lost, but. He Desmond King did almost everything perfectly, and he was in a very difficult spot. So, you know, it was the best defensive game I saw all year from the Titans, and they still lost. And if you had told me that the Titans were going to play their best defensive game, I would have told you that they were going to put up 42 points, and it would have been one of the biggest wins in, you know, the Titans playoff history. But, you know, here we are because the Titans couldn't figure out what to do with, you know, Corey Davis hurt, with Adam Humphreys hurt, with, you know, A.J. Brown getting coverage rolled to his side and with them stacking the box. Like, they just didn't have an answer for it. And it was it was brutal to watch the side of the ball that you had confidence in lose the game. 
Yeah, I, I'm with you there, Will. I, th- I think the reason that they lost is that it, it was a failure by the offense. The defense actually played pretty well, I believe, had four or five sacks. Uh, Lamar Jackson certainly made some plays, but he's going to. He's one of the best quarterbacks in the league for a reason. Um, and and so it was a little shocking, like you said, Will, the fact that the offense couldn't score the 21 points they needed to win the game. They only scored 13, a touchdown and, and two field goals. And it seemed like, you know, when Baltimore stopped Derrick Henry, that there was just no answer. Early in the game, A.J. Brown was abusing Marlon Humphrey, but I, I, I feel like, I, mean, I haven't gone back and watched the tape or anything, but I feel like what probably happened is what you said, Will. They, they rolled co- coverage over to that side and, and sort of took him out of the game. And then when Corey Davis went down, they just weren't really left with much other than, you know, a double-covered A.J. Brown and Khalif Raymond and Cameron Batson. I mean, I guess you do have Jonu Smith and, and Anthony Furkser. I mean, the, the more I'm talking, I'm sort of talking myself into a, a belief that the offense just failed to execute. I don't think this was a situation where you say, well, they were just put in a tough spot, and, and what really were they supposed to do? Uh, I, I mean, I think it's on Henry for not, you know, taking matters into his own hands more than he did and, and, and making a big play. Uh, I think it's on Tannehill for not being able to, to make more things happen, perhaps with his legs. Uh, just just a failure by the offense, and, and I think that's precisely why they lost the game, and I think all three of us are in agreement on that. One thing I want to ask now to see you know, where we sit is a failure of a game, obviously, and a failure by the offense. Was this a failure of a season by the Titans? Because this has been a big debate. I've seen it on Twitter. I've, seen it, I've heard it on the radio. Was this season a failure for the Titans? And I'll start by saying this. Like you said, Matias, outside of, after that 5-0 start, not since, they lo- not since the Titans lost to the Bengals have I thought that this team had any chance at winning the Super Bowl with that defense. Because I'm a firm believer that defense wins championships, and, and if they don't win it for you, you at least have to have one to win one. And this defense was historically bad on third downs, historically bad at getting sacks. And so, you know, they won 11 games partially because they had a rough schedule, partially because I think Mike Vrabel's a good head coach and has gotten them prepared to execute and, and seal the deal when they're in situations late in games. Uh, and that's a credit to them, certainly. But, you know, I don't sit really and think of what could have been because I don't know that I, that's just kind of what they were. They were they're Like you said, Matisse, they're a one-and-done team at the end of the day. Always were. Yeah, if you, if you would have asked me this question right after the game, I would have said absolutely complete failure of a season because it just felt like they wasted they wasted 11 wins. They wasted a whole playoff game. Uh, but then I kind of, you know, took a step back, kind of looked at the big picture and, and realized that it was a good season. I mean, even though the defense was horrifically bad, like historically on a historical level, they, they were they were really that bad, especially on third downs. Uh, despite that, they, they ended up winning 11 games, which they hadn't done in since, what, 2008, right, when they went 13-3. and three. Uh, They finally snapped that 9-7 and seven curse that, that felt like we would never get out of that that sort of purgatory. Um, 
And yeah, I mean, e- even though they didn't build upon making it to the AFC Championship game uh, last year, uh, it's it's so hard. It's so hard to repeat that level of success that when you kind of te- take a step back and look at the big big picture, you realize this is hard. Like this is not easy. This wasn't. You're not supposed to make it to the Super Bowl every other every single year. Uh, the fact that the Patriots were able to do it is insane. Like we will never see that again. So I think you have to take everything into account. But like I said before, you're still left with that desire in kind of a bittersweet feeling because this offense was good enough to win a Super Bowl. And if the defense would have just played at the level that it did last year, they probably could have won the Super Bowl. So in that aspect, it just, it feels crappy because they really had a good shot, but it's hard to, to, to say that, that this was truly a failure. I I don't think it, I don't think any team that wins 11 games and hosts a playoff game can could possibly say that their season was a was an abject failure. And this may sound strange, but I think the fact that the Titans were so good on offense and so bad on defense is a, a big part of why the season wasn't a failure because it wasn't to me. And I think the biggest thing that came out of the season was we got answer, answers to a lot of questions. First of all, we know. Keith Carter, probably a much better offensive line coach than given credit for in the first two seasons of his career. Um, he did a lot with the guys behind him. You also figured out that Ryan Tannehill was a franchise quarterback, which was a huge question going into the season. You figured out that it wasn't a bad idea to pay Derrick Henry, and he proved that he was worth that money. You also figured out that A.J. Brown wasn't a mirage. He was a real you know, bona fide wide receiver one. And that Corey Davis might be the be a quality wide receiver too, like we all thought he would be for a long time, you know. And and I can keep going down the list of things. And then on the other side of the ball, you learned what wasn't working. You learned that it wasn't the players that made Dean Pease. It was Dean Pease that helped really emphasize what the players did well. And I think if the defense was mediocre if they were 16th in the league and everything, we would probably get them running it back and trying the same thing over again. And now we know that that won't work. Hopefully you avoid that purgatory because you don't want to be in the middle saying, well, if this broke differently, if this, you know, we know that what they did on offense, thumbs up, what they did on defense, thumbs down. Now keep what works and change what didn't. So I think that, if for nothing else, you know, even if you forget the 11 wins, which was great, even if you, you forget the historic offense, which was, you know, which is a great aspect, if you forget hosting a home playoff game and, you know, winning the AFC South, if you forget all those things, just the long-term answers of we know what works and what doesn't and we know what the blueprint for success for this team should be now go forward, I think that's almost more important than what happened. And, not saying that I'm not disappointed in the the loss of the Ravens. That sucked. I I just talked about how you know I was speechless after the game was over and how I just was not expecting that. But if you have to look look back, it's not a hollow victory to look at the numbers and say this worked and this didn't. Because if you take the information we learned and you apply it to the future, this can be a good team for a very long time. Most of the good players on this team are young. And a lot of them are under contract for next year and beyond. So 
it just just taking a deep breath and looking back, I would not call this season a failure. You know, I, I tend to agree. Like, like you said, Matias, it's hard to say it was a failure or, or certainly not a disaster. And that's what I wrote after the game. Disappointment, not disaster, is sort of the narrative of the season. I think we can agree, though, that it was a waste of, of such a good offense. Now, did that offense ultimately let them down in the first round of the playoffs? Yes. But, uh, I mean, the Titans had a historically good offense. And as the, all three of us said over and over again during the regular season, all they needed was like a below-average defense. But they had a catastrophically bad defense. And I want to talk about some of the reasons why the defense was so bad. Looking back now in retrospect. And we're going to talk some more about that with Mike Herndon when he comes on a little bit later. But, I mean, it's kind of an issue of where do you start with the defense. We saw player regression with, with players like Rashawn Evans and Kevin Byard. We saw bad coaching. You know, Mike Vrabel talks so often about, you know, he wants his team to be fast and aggressive, and far too often this defense was slow and soft. The, the total antithesis of that. Uh, Shane Bowen made made mistakes. I, I think Vrabel made mistakes. My primary complaint was the sort of soft off coverage. And, and Will, I know you have plenty of other gripes with the lack of aggressiveness and, and the soft nature of this defense. I don't think the fact that you know Bowen didn't have a name tag that said defensive coordinator uh, mattered because he, he, he sort of was. He just didn't have the title. And so my, my takeaway from that is the problem is not that Vrabel didn't hire a defensive coordinator. The problem is he hired a bad one. And, and there's certainly a chance heading into 2021 that he doubles down on it and actually gives Bowen the defensive coordinator title. And, and I don't think it helped them, certainly didn't, losing Jarrell Casey and Logan Ryan. Now, do you go back in retrospect and probably make both of those moves again, electing to not re-sign Logan Ryan and, and electing to trade Jarrell Casey? You certainly let Ryan still go to New York, and I think you probably still uh, do the Casey trade, although the the guy they used the cap space for, Jadeveon Clowney, did absolutely nothing for them. I mean, there's a lot that went into the Titans' defense being this bad, and there are some excuses out there where you can say, well, you know, it's hard to blame them for such and such. But there were just a lot of mistakes made. There were a lot of, uh, of decisions that were made that turned out to be poor ones. And that's what led to a catastrophe. Yeah. Uh, I think Will is probably going to agree with me. I think the biggest mistake was assuming that Mike Vrabel and Shane Bowen were going to be able to replicate uh, the efficiency that Dean Pease had coordinating the defense. I think that was the biggest issue because... Yeah, they could have gone out and, and gotten more uh, better edge pass rushers, even though, I mean, they went out to get cl Clowney, but we, we know what happened there. Uh, but they could have gone out, gotten another edge, uh, gotten maybe another defensive lineman. But they were just expecting their players to play to the same level that they had uh, the, the year before. And I, I think, like, that's that's logical from John Robinson, right? I mean, he also went 
uh, and he drafted Christian Fulton. He expected him to be a starter. That didn't end up happening, whether that's because Fulton just couldn't pick up the defense and he just uh, isn't all that great yet, or whether that's because the coaching staff uh, has shown to be rather incompetent in terms of coordinating defense and getting the most out of their defensive players. Uh, I don't know, but I don't know. Like I have to blame Mike Rabel and Shane Bowen because like we've talked about so many times before, we've seen these players play well and they played terribly this year. And a lot of it wasn't due just uh, because of scheme and, and, and because of talent. A lot of it was, they just became soft and it was, it was baffling to see because for so many years, this defense was known for being really quick to the ball, being very sound tackling uh, and not being soft, being aggressive, hitting hard. And we didn't see that this entire season and, and their captains didn't show it. Kevin Byard certainly didn't show it. Uh, he, he was just, Man, he was bad, and so was Rashawn Evans. And and to see those types of players who are supposed to be the leaders on your defense playing the way uh, they did, it was it was shocking. It, it was truly shocking, and it just makes sense to blame Vrabel and Bowen because we have seen these players play well before, and Mike Vrabel and Shane Bowen turned them into one of the worst defenses that we've we've ever seen. And uh, it, it's just logical to put the blame on the coaches. Yeah, I mean, you, you mean you you said you said everything that I would have said. I, I can't. It, are we upset with the results? Yes. Are we upset with the decisions? I think on the on the whole, we spend a lot of time focusing on two bad decisions and not eight ones that we would do all over again if we were rolling the dice. Like I. You know, I'm not sure if we're going to talk about John Robinson in a minute or not, but, you know, I, I think the biggest takeaway is what you said, which is we saw Shane Bowen and Mike Vrabel ruin half of the starters on the football team, and they still managed to win 11 games. So anytime the defense did anything well, it was in spite of the scheme and it was in spite of the coaching. You can progressively see players that get playing time get worse the more that they're coached by variable. And that's not, that's not speculative. It, Desmond King's first game was his best game until this la until, you know, week 18 or whatever, the first round of the playoffs at uh, tier tarts. Best game was the first one that he played. You could make an argument that maybe it was the Colts game. Breon borders. Best game was, and, and, and I, I'm fully aware that, a lot, a lot of this is because the first game that they all played was against the Bears. But even the second game was better than the third game. And, you know, the, the reps that they played didn't necessarily get worse, but they just they lost some of that edge that they had. And I don't know how much of that is Brabel and Bowen telling them to temper what they're doing, but they slowly would start to make the same mistakes that everybody else on the roster was making. And... It's good that we had those guys because we could see, especially with Breon Borders, you could see the effect that it was having on him where he was thinking too much. He wasn't playing his normal game. He got in his head, and ultimately it ended up with him giving up that double move to the Browns and allowing you know, Baker Mayfield to throw for that long touchdown or whatever. But 
it's just a spiral downwards the longer these guys are with Vrabel. Uh, I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't know what other way to show it than to just say, look at what Dean Pease did with a defense that had eight of the 11 starters that were on this team. And the guys he didn't have were 30 years or older, or or I guess Logan Ryan was 29 or something, but it's like you miss Logan Ryan and Jarrell Casey, who Jarrell Casey was instantly injured and out this season. So we didn't get to see what he could have been, but you know, it's not like they lost, you know, TJ Watt. They didn't lose Aaron Donald. They didn't lose, you know, prime Luke Keekley. Like, it's not like they lost an all pro that was at the center of their defense. It was Mike Vrabel found an all pro in who or a guy who should be an all pro in Kevin Byard and turned him into a non factor at best and a problem at worst. So, I, I mean, regardless of what moves you make, if the guy in charge of coaching those players can't do that job well or as well as the guy before, that's that's a coaching problem. And see, and I think you're dead yeah. on there. And I think the the reason it goes both ways is we we can we can say both of these things that I'm about to say. You you can say number one, well, what are Vrabel and Bowen supposed to do when when the only pass rushers you have out there are you know, Wyatt Ray and, you know, 33-year-old Brooks Reed and a totally winded, worn-out Harold Landry because he's all they really have and they have to work him to death. So in that sense, yeah, they didn't have a whole lot to work with. But like you said, Will, at the same time, we can also say, so why did Kevin Byard, who, and we'll talk about this more with Mike, who I would have told you at the beginning of the season was a top-10 player in the entire NFL, why did he look lost throughout the season why did Rashawn Evans who seemed like a candidate to have a real breakout season why was he totally worthless for most of the season and and playing run and chase when he used to be such an aggressive and an instinctual player and now he's getting all these penalties so I think that the coaching staff was dealt a bad hand in some ways and we'll talk more about that uh in a little bit with, with some of the decisions that John Robinson made coming into the season but I think also in the same breath, you have to say, with what they did have, like you, you were just saying, well, they kind of screwed it up. Yeah. Let me just, I just want to say something real quick. Like, there are no players on, on the defensive side of the ball that you can point to and say they definitively got better because of the coaching staff. I would say the two that played much better than last year are Amani Hooker and David Long. And the only reason. I'm even pointing them out is because they played more. It's not because the coaching staff put them in positions to succeed. They just played more because of injuries and because of the poor performances of, of other players. Uh, so there's no one that really got better. And, and you just have to point the finger at the coaching staff. And to even emphasize that further, and I'll, I'll say this, then I'll get back to what we we're talking about before to emphasize your point. They didn't start the whole season until there was, what uh, uh, Jayon Brown had to go out for David Long to finally get a shot. And even then there were times where they would say, and I think Will Compton did a good job this year. I I should say that first, but there were times where Will Compton got snaps ahead of him. There were times where uh, Nate Zubnar got, uh, or Nick or whatever his name is, 
uh, got more starting snaps on defense ahead of him. I mean, they didn't want to play him, and when they played him, he was their best player in the front seven oftentimes. Like, I mean, maybe best is too strong with Jeffrey Simmons, Harold Landry, but you understand what I'm saying. He was definitely their best linebacker, and he made impact plays. Amani Hooker was by far the best safety on this team for probably 12 out of 16 weeks, and he, he barely got it. Like, I mean, he just... He, I understand that you don't want to mess up continuity for the first eight weeks of the season, but at a certain point, you have to realize this guy's leading the team in interceptions. We're struggling on defense. Why don't I, as a quote-unquote defensive head coach, find a way to get the guys who are actually making plays onto the field, and Vrabel and Bowen refuse to do that. So that's just another you know feather in the cap of your argument where even the guys that they – were getting stuff, getting production from, weren't getting playing time. So then going back to the argument of, you know, well, what could you do with, you know, when you have this defense? But the, the defense they ended the season with is not the defense they started with. They started with Jadavian Clowney, didn't get anything out of him, even though everywhere else he's been and every scheme he's been in, he's been productive or at very least more productive than this. Even in the, I mean, even if you just want to focus on his run game production and the tackles for loss, I mean, it was just nothing there from Clowney, and that's a guy that Mike Vrabel stood on the table for and swore, oh, we we love uh, what do they call him, JC? We JD. love JC, oh, JD. That's right, we love JD. JD's great. Can't wait to have JD. I hope he's here. JD's great. All that stuff. Eight games, quit for the season. You know, maybe he got injured. He probably didn't, or he probably uh, was not uh, as injured. As, well, I'm gonna call. Uh, okay, like okay. So where's the played and then mysteriously ended up taking a voluntary surgery to be out for the season. He missed a game, then came back, and then went out. I don't. I don't think there's anything to that. Like, I, I, I think. Well, I believe the report is, or the reports that were coming out were. There's uh, some indication that he might be able to play, blah blah blah, and then he ended up getting the voluntary surgery on his knee or whatever. And maybe it, maybe it's not that simple. Maybe it would have required him to be tough, but you know, Roger Saffold got toe surgery in the middle of a week, came back and played Ben Jones played hurt all season. Jeffrey Simmons is recovering from an ACL injury and he played, you know, way more snaps than they intended. Harold, like it may, maybe it's worse than that. I would assume and I will say this is an assumption by me based off every time that anybody brought up Javian Clowney's name after he elected to get that surgery and go on injured reserve, that there's more to it than it was such a bad injury that they just had to put him back on the shelf. That's that I'll say that's my assumption, whatever. But regardless, he was given the piece of Javian Clowney that he begged for. And that that we went through this whole long drawn out dog and pony show for him to end up in Tennessee, so that's one player that he had that didn't work out. And then you know, Jayon Brown didn't start off the season hurt. He started out on the field. Adoree Jackson was a surprise injury that nobody expected. So I mean, that's not really something you could prepare for. And even if you were, I mean, they lost two of their starting three corners when Fulton and. Adori missed, like, got injured in tra- training camp. And I mean, I I know that every team deals with injuries, but the injuries compounded with the lack of making the most of what you have on defense, to me, was the undoing of the team for 16 weeks until this past game. 
Yeah, I, 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 I think you're on there, although I will say that it's perhaps a mild contradiction to say you know, Vrabel and the coaching staff didn't get anything out of Clowney and then also make the argument that, like, Clowney quit on the team. Like, I, I, I don't know about that. What I do know is that we are about to be joined by Mike Herndon. He is one of our absolute favorite guests. You can follow him on Twitter, at Mike Miracles, if you don't already, which I'm guessing you do. If you don't, you need to, because he's one of the best follows out there. We're going to be talking to Mike about everything related to the Titans' loss to the Ravens and this Titan season as a whole in 30 seconds. All right, so we're joined now by my Mike Herndon, as we teased earlier. And, and Mike, we're going to go ahead and hop right out into it, because there's just so much to talk about at the end of this Titans' season. I'm going to start with the defense, as we've talked about with you already this year. We've talked about it to death. Um, where is this defense headed? Because the 2020 season is over. The historically bad third down defense and the defense that, that couldn't sack anyone, they're done. Now we look to the future, and some questions that need to be answered are, is Mike Vrabel going to hire a defensive coordinator? Is he going to give Shane Bowen the title? Where does the personnel go from here? What, in your eyes, is sort of the status update moving forward on the Titans' defense? Yeah, um, I think they've got a ton of decisions to make, for sure. I mean, obviously, keeping Shane Bowen as defensive coordinator would be a wildly unpopular uh, decision. And, I mean, I get it. You know, like a lot of the stuff that they failed in, I think, points directly at the coaching, the third down defense, the – uh, red zone defense was atrocious too. So those are situational football kind of things that, you know, we talk uh, on the offensive side about how well prepared the Titans are for those kind of situations. Well, they were the exact opposite on defense, right? So a lot of that, I think, goes directly onto Bowen's, uh, you know, kind of ledger as far as, as his performance this year. Um, you know, that being said, they didn't give him a ton to work with, right? I mean, you you got by the end of the season, you've got Wyatt Ray and uh, Brooks Reed out there um, as your top edge rushers, and and you know you've got and, you know David Long, who I think played pretty well, but you know not not exactly a guy that you were expecting to have as your coverage linebacker certainly uh, this season. So uh, you know. He had some adversity, certainly from a personnel side, to work through. But you still, when you look at the names on the on the roster and and what they've done before, guys like Byard, Evans, even Jayon Brown before he got hurt, uh, you've seen them perform better uh, previously. And so for them all to kind of backslide uh, in the same season feels like uh, it has to be related to coaching. And and I think um, you actually could look even further down the list. I mean, not just Bowen, but the position coaches, uh, you know, Jim Hazlitt, Anthony Midget, uh, Scott Booker, do those guys need to be back? Um, but if you're going to make a change at defensive coordinator, you may be answering that question for yourself. Cause I mean, if you bring in a DC, you know, especially a guy that has, you know, any sort of experience, he may have his own guys that he wants to bring in and, and be able to run, uh, you know, his own linebackers coach, his own uh, defensive backs coach, that kind of thing. Um, so I, I think it'll be interesting to see where Mike Vrabel decides to take uh, the direction of the defense. Um, obviously, personnel, they're going to have to do some stuff, too. They've got to get edge rush fixed. You know, that was the, the theme of last offseason. 
and it busted with with Beasley and Clowney. Um, so they've got to try again, uh, go back to that well. And, and interestingly enough, I, I I went back just for you know entertainment's sake, I guess, uh, and looked at the other edge rushers that that changed teams last off season. Uh, you look at Dante Fowler. You look at uh, you know a few others like that. I'm trying to remember who the other names were now. But if if you look at them, uh, or uh, oh, um, Robert Quinn was another one. None of those guys had more than four sacks. Um, the only one that did actually was Emmanuel Agba, who was nobody's idea of a premier free agent edge rusher. Um, but he went down to Miami and put up a big season with nine sacks and, and played very well for them. So it's kind of an interesting thing. It's almost as if, you know, no matter which way they went uh, with that edge rush free agent signing, it was bound to fail uh, given the, the results that we saw from some of these other guys uh, that went other places. But they've got to find the answer there, whether that's a Carl Lawson or uh, Bud Dupree, or you know, if they go with an older guy and draft a guy kind of uh, scenario, you can look at a Ryan Kerrigan. But um, they, they've got to find an answer, and they've got to find somebody who's available and able to contribute immediately. It can't be uh, just spend your first round pick there and that's all fixed, because that guy's probably not going to be super effective right out of the gate. So yeah, I think you need a free agent and a draft pick, and, and really to kind of hammer home, uh, you know, getting something out of that position in 2021. Hey, Mike, Matias here. I want to talk to you a little bit, or ask you a little bit, about uh, the Ravens matchup in, in particular. Uh, surprisingly, surprisingly, I don't want to talk about the defense because I thought they played relatively well considering how they played throughout the season. Uh, and I think holding the Ravens to 20 points, usually you would think the Titans offense would be good enough to, to score enough, but they didn't. And, and I think the reason they didn't is because the offensive line just kind of got overpowered. Uh, and you're an offensive line guy, so I kind of want to know what went wrong for the Titans offensive line in this matchup. Because from my casual viewer eyes, it, it seemed like the Ravens just completely owned the line of scrimmage and didn't didn't allow Henry to get anywhere and it just kind of ended up crippling the whole offensive output for the team. Yeah, it definitely did. And and I think part of it is scheme, right? I mean, the Ravens came into the game and they did this the last two matchups. So I don't think this should have been a surprise to the Titans and Arthur Smith, but they stacked the box. Henry had, you know, eight or more defenders in the box for 13 of his 18 attempts. Uh, They run blitz like crazy they like to bring their corners off the edge, which kind of uh, really is, is tough when you're trying to run that outside zone. If they're bringing cor- corner blitzes like crazy, that, that really messes with what you can do, uh, you know, in, in that outside zone scheme. Because if you can't get the corner from being able to collapse that that end, then you're in real trouble. Um, so it's it was kind of a combination of things, I think. I do think – Brandon Williams and Clay Campbell are tough to move inside. That's that's something they were not in the Week 11 matchup. They were in this week, uh, and they're tough to move for anybody. You know, there's a reason the Ravens' defense has been heating up over the back half of the season as those guys have kind of gotten in, worked into the the rotation along with Yannick Ngakwe uh, and Matt Judon, uh, kind of on outside with Derek Wolf. I mean, that's it's a hell of a front uh, that the Ravens have and. You know, frankly, frankly, that's not an excuse for for the Titans not performing. But 
uh, it does explain part of, of what we saw on Sunday. Um, and, and I think, you know, the Ravens overcommitted to stopping the run. The Titans never gave them a reason not to. Uh, and, and I think that's really ultimately the, the reason for what we saw from the offense uh, on Sunday. Hey, Mike, it's Will. Um, so talking about defensive fronts, let's talk about the Titans' defensive front. Uh, we just talked about how edge will be a big uh, free agent, like shopping list item. And, you know, it should probably be number one. We, we can talk about some other things, but right now, if, if they go, let's say they double down and go with Bowen or Vrabel says, he's just going to call the plays again or, or whatever they do. And they go with that three defensive line elephant end kind of thing. Do you shift? the mentality to, okay, they're only going to use Harold Landry as edge, and then they're going to move in other sub-package guys. The other quote-unquote starter on this team is going to be another defensive lineman. Do you, is, does that suddenly become the highest priority in free agency in, in the draft, I guess, too, uh, if you assume that Daquan Jones is leaving or if they just want to upgrade over Crawford or Tart, whoever that elephant in is going to be? Yeah, you know, I think it's it's interesting to see kind of what they do. Get, I mean, frankly, there's a lot that they do that's interesting defensively. Um, and they're very multiple uh, with their front. And, and part of that was kind of running that elephant in. I think a lot of that was out of necessity just because of they didn't have anybody at outside linebacker that really they felt like could go both ways. I think even, uh, you know, when they had Tizar Skipper out there, they could kind of play him on early downs and then get Roberson in for the pass rush. Uh, down so they they were kind of working a rotation there and then obviously Skipper went out and Roberson went out and so they were I mean they just didn't have any bodies uh, to put out there um, at at that spot but I do think if they I do think that package will remain a part of what they do uh, next year Um, and there's some interesting guys in the draft I think like Boogie Basham uh, from Wake Forest is a guy that particularly fits that position well right he's a little bit of an oversized he's more of your traditional four three defensive end uh and almost kind of pushing towards like what you might look at from like a three technique body type but he's he's able to set the edge he's athletic enough to play in space and and that's the kind of guy that would fit really well in that role so i don't know i don't know that they're gonna want to run that enough that they draft for it i still think probably their preferred uh, base package is is something that looks more like a traditional three four, uh, and then the, and then bring in a, a lot of that uh, you know four four two five nickel look with the outside linebackers acting as your defensive ends uh, in a four man front. I think that's probably still their preference, but uh, you know there are some guys that you know hey if if you've got if Bo- Boogie Basham is the best player available in the draft and, and you want to try to make that work then, hey, go for it. I mean, I think they're flexible enough that they could look at taking a, the best player available and fitting their scheme to, you know, what personnel they have. Um, but I think if they had a preference, it would probably be to go something more like what they had in Clowney, kind of a big, long, uh, powerful um, edge rusher. And there's several of those in the draft uh, to look at as well. To me, Mike, what, what was most concerning about the defense was something you brought up earlier and that was the regression that we saw from from some players, and it was so stark because you know we we sat here the three of us back in August and said, 
Well, Rashad Evans is a breakout candidate. You know, he's played very well his first two years. You know, he can really take a step forward and become a, a true impact player. I mean, and I hate to be this blunt, but he was he was totally useless this year. I mean, I don't I don't know of any other way to describe it. He he did not make any impact. He consistently hurt the team with penalties and and poor decision making. Uh, you know, between the whistles, and then Kevin Byard, who I would have told you before the season was a top ten player in the entire NFL, just looked lost for most of the season, and like Evans, made zero impact and at times negative impact. Uh, though not quite as stark, you can make a similar case about Jayon Brown. And Harold Landry also took a major step back with uh, five less sacks than he had a year ago. Why did all of that happen? <laughs> you know, I, I think a lot of it is the coaching staff turnover. You know, and I, I get the feeling, I, I don't know this for a fact, but I get the feeling that Byard may be most impacted by Pease leaving out of anyone on the team. Because I remember distinctly Kevin Byard talking about you know, Dean Pease's tip sheet uh, and kind of the stuff that he would give them to look out for in the game. And he said, you know, it was kind of just a sheet that you could study, at, you know, at your own thing, you know, at your, at your own pace or, or in your own time. Uh, if you wanted to, to, but just things that he noticed when he was looking at the tape that might kind of tip guys off uh, to certain plays. And Bayard, I think, followed those religiously, and I think those helped him make plays. I know specifically the interception he made in the back of the end zone against the Cowboys uh, a few years ago on Monday Night Football. He credited the Dean P's tip sheet. So I think not having that experienced voice um, in his ear during the week probably hurt Byard more so than it did some of the other players. Um, Evans, I struggle with Evans because I think Evans kind of was this year what he's always been to some degree. He's a little bit reckless. Um, sometimes that results in, in a big play. Um, more often than not, this year it did not. Um, but I, I think he's kind of, I don't know, he just he kind of plays very freelance uh, football, and that doesn't always – turn out great um you know in, in in a defense especially when the pieces around you maybe aren't quite as capable of making up and taking up the slack that you leave behind if you kind of abandon your role or your your job um on a play to go go try to make a play um so i think evans was kind of what he has been but but yeah i, I think if you look at it's got to come back to coaching to some degree because um, I, I just don't think all these players suddenly got worse overnight. Um, you know, I think you've got to point to the coaching staff and some of the changes there and, and maybe just not having, you know, that off season to work with their new position coaches, to work with a new defensive coordinator um, it, it, with, you know, the COVID restrictions and, and everything that went on this off season, you know, that, that and the, the kind of change in the guard with no Daryl Casey, no Logan Ryan, no, no Wesley Woodyard. Those are leaders at three levels of the defense um, that were lost. Uh, so, and, you know, maybe rightfully so on some of those guys. Um, I, I think Casey, uh, you know, was probably the most, uh, maybe the most productive or the most felt of those, those losses, although you can make an argument for Logan Ryan too. Um, but, yeah, I think it's a lot of change 
and not a lot of time to adjust to it. Um, and, and, you know, possibly just some bad coaching. What would you consider to be the biggest weak spots on the roster heading into the offseason? Edge is clearly the most obvious one, uh, but are there any other maybe underlooked positions where you feel the starters can be upgraded? I know we talked a little bit uh, about inside linebacker, but possibly tight end or cornerback could be one of those positions where uh, you're looking to to get a blue chip kind of guy. Yeah, I think, uh, I, I, you know, obviously a lot of it's going to depend on what they do with their free agents and who they bring back, but you've got to do something at the wide receiver position. I think regardless of whether you bring Davis back, um, which I don't know, I, I get the feeling that Davis is probably going to want to play somewhere else. I mean, if I was him, I'm not sure I'd want to sign back up for, for four more years in Tennessee where you know you're the number two wide receiver in a run first offense um and that's probably not going to change at least not in the the very near future um so I I find it hard to believe that Davis is going to be back in Tennessee frankly although I think it would be good if he was um so I think wide receiver is a spot that you have to take care of uh either through the draft or free agency we saw kind of what things looked like when you have Khalif Raymond uh, trying trying to go over the middle in a crucial spot uh, in a playoff game. It's just not that's that's not a a solid option. Nick Westbrook Aquina, you know, I, I thought actually had a pretty good rookie season, all things considering uh, considering his his role on special teams and everything. But you know, he's certainly not a guy that you would want to project into like a top four role at the wide receiver position. So, you know, and Humphreys probably got to cut him. I, I think it, that's kind of a sad story because, I, you know, who knows what's going to happen with that concussion, and that's a scary situation. But I don't know how you go into next season and have him on the roster at a $9 million cap hit given the uncertainty with concussions and what one more hit could do uh, to that roster spot. So, um, I think wide receiver is a spot, you know, and, and obviously tight end too, if they don't bring back John and Smith, um, where behind edge, you know, you, you look at those two spots and defensive line to me is the glaring spots for upgrades. So uh, the rule of thumb, especially in Robinson said this a lot is when you look at a rookie's impact, you kind of want to wait two years to see what happens. You want to see what they come in as and what they develop into the next year. I think, I mean, it's pretty generous to say that this was a disappointing rookie class. Like, I think, I think we end on what Isaiah Wilson would be. And, but at, at, I think we all expected Fulton to do something. We all expected Evans to do something. And for the most part, they didn't contribute. Mm -hmm. I guess this is a two-part question. One, are there any of those players that you just immediately don't factor into next year and beyond that, that were just so bad that you're like, okay, we can't expect player A to be in any impact on our roster from here on out. Like anything we get's great, but we're not expecting it. And then the second part is what <sighs> – what do we need to see from guys in the top 100, especially like guys like Fulton and Evans, to say that, okay, now we're ready to shift our defense to maybe full. This is more of a – I probably ask these both at the same time, but what I'm trying to get at is what do we need to see from Christian Fulton 
next year to say that, okay, we're all right moving on from Adoree Jackson because of all the injuries he's had in the past 24 months? Yeah, um, you know, I, I think Wilson's the guy that obviously I, I think it's hard for me to put any faith at all into him contributing next year. You know, Why is that? Because, frankly, we don't know if he can play at the NFL level or not yet. Um, you know, we haven't seen it. Obviously, we've heard bad practice reports. But if you hear all the other stuff going on with him, um, it's not shocking that he's not practicing well. Um, so, that's a total reclamation project off the field that I don't know how much appetite the Titans have for undertaking um, at this point. You know, it, it's pretty clear that he's not terribly interested in, you know, improving his perception at least, um, you know, putting out videos of him partying at clubs and out on boats for new year's Eve and, and all this other stuff while his teammates are in the playoffs. Like it's just not a good look. And when you're, you've already been suspended and, you know, put on this non-football illness list and all that, like, I, I just, I, I don't know that that guy's going to get it. I mean, how many wake up calls do you need before you just say, all right, the dude's, the dude's not met, not waking up. Um, you, you would think so the crash into the concrete wall on Charlotte Avenue would have been the wake up call. You would have certainly hoped so. Um, yeah. And I mean, not that's, step one. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's a, baffling uh series of decisions that he's made um that have all been poor um so I, I don't think you can count on anything from him which is obviously incredibly disappointing Fulton and Evans I thought when they were on the field flash stuff that I was excited about um Fulton didn't make a ton of big plays he had the one interception against the Jaguars where more of a right place in the right time uh interception than a, a phenomenal athletic uh, display or anything like that but you do get credit for being in the right place um you know especially as a defensive back so i i think that and he showed some ability to kind of make some of those sticky sticky coverage plays uh that you saw when he was at lsu especially as a press man guy i i'm still bullish on christian fulton as a long-term piece but i you know you're not probably going into next season you're certainly going to try to have him as a, I would say you probably want him to be one of your top three guys. I mean, you're you're not going to sit here and, and hand it to him. So I, I think he'll have some competition in some form or fashion, but I don't think you go into next year with Christian Fulton as your fourth cornerback um, on the roster. I think he needs to be a top three guy. I think he needs to be a starter um, and, and they need to figure out what they've got in them. Um, and and then Darrington Evans, the flashes obviously were impressive. Like you can, the burst jumps out. Um, and, and his injuries and Fulton's injuries really cost them their rookie seasons for the most part. So I don't know that when we look back in four years at this class, we won't feel a lot better about it if Christian Fulton turns out to be, you know, a high level corner and, and Darrington Evans turns out to be a kind of explosive piece uh, compliment to Derrick Henry. Maybe this looks a lot, a lot better uh, looking back. And frankly, I think Pierre Tart has a chance to be a starter next year as well. Um, but, you know, those are the guys you, you want to, you want to see more. Obviously Evans isn't going to be a starter, but I think Fulton's the guy that I'm most interested in heading into next year out of this class, because 
he's a guy that I still have a lot of belief in. I was big on him before the draft. Um, I haven't seen anything as far as on tape that makes me concerned that, that he's not going to develop into the guy that they drafted him to be. So um, I would, I would say that's kind of the, the guy that I'm most excited to see for next year. We'll wrap up with this, Mike, when Arthur Smith inevitably gets hired as a head coach by one of these 80 teams that have already interviewed him, who, who's <laughs> stepping up for the Titans to call plays next year? I, I, I guess my vote right now would be for Keith Carter. Uh, you know, obviously his position group has been fantastic over the last couple of years, especially given all the shuffling that he's had to do. Um, Nate Davis has developed as well as any young player on the roster. Um, and I think part of what, what interests me about Carter more so than just the individual development of players is he is the most rooted in this Shanahan West coast outside zone offense. He was with Kyle Shanahan in Atlanta. That's kind of where he uh, got his start and how he ended up in Tennessee, frankly, because he and Matt LaFleur were on that staff uh, in, in Carter was the running backs coach there, then went to assistant offensive line coach. uh, And then I think back to running backs actually. So he has, experience coaching multiple position groups he has a lot of experience in this uh specific offensive scheme and he's he's really done an impressive job with his position group so um i think he's interesting obviously downing has play calling experience um and and has he also coached under kubiak in minnesota before coming here so he has a little bit of uh, outside experience in the scheme and uh you know obviously o'hara um, you know, not doesn't have the NFL play calling experience, but does have the relationship with Ryan Tannehill. But ultimately, I'm, I keep coming back to Carter as the guy that that I like best for that job. Mike, thank you so much for taking the time, and I'm, I'm sure our uh, our listeners could hear your your son in the background. We thank you for uh, for, for <laughs> setting setting that aside for a second to join us. We always appreciate it. When we come back, we're going to be diving more into the 2020 Titans season and specifically figuring out how much blame general manager John Robinson deserves for the Titans' shortcomings. All of that and more in 30 seconds. All right, everyone, we are back. We appreciate Mike joining the show. As I said earlier, you can follow him on Twitter at MikeMiracles. You can also listen to uh, the podcast that he hosts along with Zach Lyons and uh, Mr. Lebowski, that's called Football and Other F-Words. It's a, a great, great podcast that they do. Go check them out. All right. Now, we need to have a conversation about John Robinson because, in my opinion, and, and I don't know how you can dispute this, uh, certainly the worst offseason of John Robinson's tenure as the Titans. That is anyone disputing that this was John Robinson's worst offseason of the ones that he's had? No, that's, okay. that is correct. Yeah. So we can agree on that. Beyond that, I, I just think it was an objectively horrendous offseason. Now, it's it didn't quite get to, you know, Rustin Webster levels where, you know, you get in a bunch of schlubs that you pay, you know, long-term contracts for and proved to be worthless and and a totally useless draft you know it wasn't quite to that level however it was a majorly out of character draft for John Robinson 
And, and there are going to have to be questions he answers in the 2021 offseason. We'll get into some of those questions next week in our episodes. In our episode, But, but guys, let, let's look back on this offseason. Because as I argued in a column that I wrote on Monday, I think the primary reason behind the fact that the Titans weren't able to get back to the level they were at last year or advance is that John Robinson failed them in the offseason. It started with free agency where he got Vic Beasley and ultimately much later got Jadeveon Clowney. Those guys combined for $21 million and zero sacks and only about 10 games between the two of them combined. Uh, He also neglected the wide receiver position, which came back to bite them hard against the Ravens on Sunday. And then you get to the draft, and, you know, the guys he drafted, Christian Fulton only played seven games and and a minimal role in those games. Darrington Evans was only a kick returner and a gunner. Laurel Murchison was a sub-package guy. Cole McDonald never even got close to making the team. And what about the first-round pick? Well, Isaiah Wilson was too busy uh, playing a real-life version of Grand Theft Auto and hanging out with strippers on a boat to contribute for the Titans. Are there some excuses? And I won't even call them excuses. I will call them justifications for John Robinson. You know, the fact that COVID hit and he wasn't able to talk to these guys in person, certainly. Is it his fault when guys get injured, which was the case for Christian Fulton and Darrington Evans? And and ultimately Clowney, though he did nothing before he got hurt. No, that is not his fault. However, we cannot sit here and excuse John Robinson for things that were clearly his fault. Uh, It was a horrendous rookie class. It was a terrible free agency period. The good things he did, right, were he re-signed Tannehill, he re-signed Henry, and he opened up some cap space by uh, moving on from Jarrell Casey. But we cannot sit here and excuse John Robinson simply because, oh, it was the COVID year. Because other teams got production out of rookies. I mean, I, I could sit here and give you a list of, you know, probably 30 to 40 rookies who helped their teams more than all of the Titans rookies combined did. So I'll stop there. I, I've kind of been talking and, and ranting for a while about this. What, what's y'all's assessment of this offseason for John Robinson? Because I just fail how, it, how an assessment of it can be anything other than it was an abject failure. It, it it was terrible. Like, I, I think it was terrible. I When it happened, uh, before the season even started, we talked about it, and I said it was just an incredibly weird and really off-brand uh, off-season for John Robinson uh, with the draft picks, uh, the signings he made, um, and also some of the coaching staff decisions uh, that were made. It was just – it was weird. And it ended up being not weird. It ended up being terrible. It ended up being uh, borderline a disaster. Thankfully, the Titans ended up winning the division anyway. But I don't know how much we can say that was due to John Robinson's moves. I, I don't know if he were to make better moves in this offseason, whether the Titans would have gone gotten farther in, the, in these playoffs. I don't know. Uh, it's hard to say, but he definitely didn't help them. Uh, like you said, his draft class was was awful, man. Like I don't know how much of that 
was truly his fault. Isaiah Wilson pick was always obviously his his fault. Uh, Fulton, Fulton and Evans dealt with injuries, and Burgesson really, you know, he's a fifth rounder. Really couldn't expect too much from him. Uh, but then add to that uh, the free agents that that he signed that really didn't help at all. It was it was really bad. I'm not concerned going forward. I think he will probably overcorrect in this coming uh, offseason and probably get back to his old ways. Uh, and I, I, I do think COVID had a, a lot to do with this past offseason. Uh, I, I said that when they when they even signed Beasley because Beasley just not the type of free agent that John Robinson would normally sign. And, and I wondered how much not being able to meet these guys in person consistently uh, affected Robinson and some of his decisions. Uh, and, and I do think it did. Um, but, but I do have a lot of confidence in him going forward. Uh, especially after he saw uh, the season and the way that it did. Yeah, so let's talk about this. Um, you kind of glossed over keeping Ryan Tannehill, which, first of all, the contract he got, because let, let's remember where this offseason started, is the Titans did not have enough money to keep all the players that they wanted to keep. They ended up having to let Jack Conklin go, which, you know, was not the decision I would have made, but is ultimately one of the biggest decisions of the entire offseason because of the dominoes that fell after. Um, they would have had to keep him on a very expensive contract, and it would have been tough to keep him and Ryan Tannehill and Derrick Henry. They elected to let him walk, and they kept Tannehill on a, on a deal that's cheap, very cheap for quarterbacks when we look at the market now. And Derrick Henry eventually on a deal that basically – gave them two years of coverage and then options after that. I think we all agree that in retrospect, we would have picked Henry and Tannehill instead of trying to roll the dice and figure it out with Conklin and the other two. So I think, I think if we assumed that they could not have kept all three, they picked the right two. Um, And, you know, Henry went on to have 2000 yards and Tannehill had his monster season with the offense. So, they made the right call there. They got Dennis Kelly back in the fold for three years on a cheap contract, which was great. Um, then they made other small moves that helped contribute, which everybody does every offseason. It's nothing special. You know, getting guys like Jack Crawford, Ty Sambrello, you know, building depth on this roster is not remarkable, and it's not noteworthy in a positive direction, but it is. it does sort of mitigate losing out on fifth-round picks and seventh-round picks. Like, Signing Crawford to have him play over Murchison probably is fine. I mean, that what Crawford did this season is probably what you would have hoped out of Murchison. And I, I think that's fair. You know, signing uh, Sam Brelo is, uh, in retrospect, a really good move that if he hadn't gotten hurt, I think would look a lot better. But because he got hurt, we can't really see how that played out. But that built the depth that they needed. And then you look at the draft class and, well, I guess first I should talk about Vic Beasley. I think Vic Beasley was supposed to be a Cam Wake replacement. I think that's that's what we all thought at the time. That's who we all thought he compared to best. That They said they wanted to play him. You know, they wanted to start him. They have no idea what they want to do. They, they say this all the time. They say that they don't pay a guy $10 million not to start him, and then they that's exactly what they do. Or they say this year we're going to play Harold Landry less, and then he plays more than anybody else on defense. So that what they say in press conferences after they sign somebody or whatever is is all unreliable. 
So I think that's what they plan to do. And to their credit, every other defensive coordinator that Vic Beasley had ever had had gotten at least five sacks out of him in every season. So if you could tell me that redoing it and giving this team a good defensive coordinator, they would have gotten five sacks for $10 million with the chance at more sacks, I would have been pumped about it. And and I would roll the dice on that again. So, you know, there, there were red flags about Beasley, but at the same time, like you, you know, in a COVID deal, like we were, you couldn't get people in the building. You make a one year contract. And then if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. You know, I, I, I wasn't a big, a big Beasley or a big, a uh, big Beasley guy when it happened. So I'm not, I'm not standing on the table defending it, but I understood the rationale. Then you go into the draft and remembering what we, where we were mentally then, nobody wanted Isaiah Wilson. That was a bad pick. We all hated that pick. But we've looked at the draft again and the guys that we all wanted were gone. You know, they're, they're, you know, the five picks before. You get guys like, uh, or, sorry, not five picks, the 10 picks before. You get guys like Justin Jefferson, which we liked enough. You know, you get wide receivers that, that are fine. But, like, all the the edges that were drafted around that pick weren't good, and they weren't going to draft an edge anyway because Mike Vrabel had already, you know, said, I want Clowney, let's get Clowney. They didn't draft a single edge in that entire class, and then they talked about Clowney after the draft was over. So, you know, they weren't going to take that there. I mean – the best players picked in the next 10 picks were, I mean, maybe T Higgins and Michael Pittman, but I don't really think they're anything special, special. And I don't know where they would have gotten on the field now that we've seen what the Titans wide receivers did. I mean, I guess they ride the bench and we just assume that Humphreys is going to get a concussion and then they roll out there. But I think we would have thought that was a waste of a pick. Not, not as much as Isaiah Wilson, but also not a guy that made a huge impact on the team. Then you look at guys like Kyle Duggar, Xavier McKinney, like, I, I don't know, maybe Jonathan Taylor. If you think that, you know, forget giving Derrick Henry a major contract and the fact that he got 2000 yards, maybe he's the pick, but ultimately there's not anybody there that we just would have, you know, pounded the table for. So and, and, look, I, I, I don't want, I don't want to interrupt. I want, I want you to be able to finish. Okay. Well, and you know, then we, you see the whole picture of the draft. Got They thought that the cornerback depth was good enough. They got Fulton, who, you know, athletically, production-wise, like all that stuff. I, I was excited about him after the draft pick and during the draft process. So we all talked about how, oh, well, if you just pretend that Isaiah Wilson was a second, like we do every year, if you just pretend that Isaiah Wilson was the second-round pick and that Fulton was the first-round pick, what a great value. And – there is some truth to that. Like we've done that in the past and it's worked and it's been great, but you know, Fulton got banged up. You couldn't have seen that coming, but at the time that felt like a smart decision because you thought you were going to have to get rid of Malcolm Butler after this year, or you thought he would play in the slot. So, okay. There's your Logan Ryan replacement. Darrington Evans was, it, 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 that fits what Robinson does. A productive smaller school guy in the third round. Like that's what Robinson does. And the methodology behind it was correct, I think, because next year Henry cannot get this many touches. Like this, is, it's just an unsustainable workload for him to carry. And he did it this year, but you don't want to roll the dice next year. And that's you know, there's great third round value in running backs historically. Like go ahead and pull the trigger there. Like I think the top 100 picks, which are the ones that you generally 
judged the most and the ones that have the biggest impact on your team. I think Isaiah Wilson was a miss. We all knew it was a miss. It's a terrible pick. But it's not like when the Titans drafted Jake Locker and then J.J. Watt was a few picks behind. Like, it's not like, man, could you imagine if they've drafted so-and-so here? Like, when you say that and you look back, there's nobody in the next 10 picks that you're like, that's somebody I really wanted them to draft during the draft, and unfortunately they picked somebody else. It's like, yeah, if I could see in the future and see the third-round pick that was going to be like the steal of the draft, yeah, I guess that would have been a great pick, but nobody would have sided with that and who knows what that person would have become in Tennessee. But, you know, kind of keeping going with this narrative is they thought that they were playing with house money because they were going to get Jadavian Clowney in, and that was somebody that Mike Vrabel, like I've said a million times before, pounded on the table for and thought he could make as productive as he was the last time he was a defensive coordinator. You know, now that we know the bulk of the moves, you have to put all the defensive players in Mike Vrabel's scheme, which didn't work. So any defensive contribution you thought you were going to get, wipe that off. Then you have the injuries to Fulton and Evans, wipe them off. You're left with the one guy untouched, which was the guy we hated. And he also got, I mean, I assume he got COVID. He got put on the COVID list. So, you know, he got COVID to start off his career, didn't, it ended up late to camp, wasn't in shape, you know, was never really fully committed, then just continued to do dumb stuff over and over, which is an abject failure of a first round pick because they didn't get the character checked out the way they should have. And the background didn't check out. So that is absolutely a failure, but you know, like I, it's very unfortunate. And like, like we said before, I think that this is Robinson's worst off season, but the methodology behind, you know, eight of their 10 moves I got, like I understood at the time, it wasn't flashy, it wasn't exciting, but you know what? Neither was Richard Matthews when they signed him, or you know, a dozen other picks that have happened over the last you know six years that have worked out. Richard Matthews helped the Titans win games. Like that's the difference here, and I have trouble with looking back on decisions that didn't work and saying it wasn't that bad because the methodology made sense to begin with. I just don't think that that is a a valid excuse. Uh, and, and I think that, you know, I think you make valid points about some of the role players he brought in, guys like Jack Crawford and, and Ty Sambrilo. However, at the end of the day, John Robinson wasn't tasked necessarily with you know, finding the depth guys. He was tasked with getting the Titans over the hump and getting them to where they could win a Super Bowl, and he actively made them worse. I, I, I mean, you 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 have to accept the fact that Jadavian Clowney, Vic, the, the additions of Jadavian Clowney, Vic Beasley, I, and Isaiah Wilson, with the losses of Logan Ryan and Jarrell Casey, was a massive net loss for the Titans, and it wasn't even close. And in terms of the argument over, well, you know, who else would they really could have taken at 29? Literally anyone, literally anyone would have been better than Isaiah Wilson. I'm looking at, and I know, I get it, you know, these weren't necessarily positions they were looking at at the time, but Clyde Edwards-Alaire, T. Higgins, Michael Pittman, DeAndre Swift, Xavier McKinney, Jonathan Taylor, Grant Delpit, Marlon Davidson, Chase Claypool, Jalen Johnson, Trayvon Diggs, Cam Akers, Jalen Hurts. I mean, obviously that would have been a bizarre pick, 
But in hindsight, <laughs> it should have been the one that was made. They should have taken Jalen Hurts instead of Isaiah Wilson. I mean, he, it was a whiff. It was a disaster. And, and I don't understand. I don't understand defending it. I think he screwed up. Was was the logic there? Sure. But this is excusing the ends because of the means in my mind. And the ends were tragic for the Titans. Yeah. I mean, there's no defending the Isaiah Wilson pick. The only thing I'll say in defense of John Robinson, um, I'm pretty, I, I'm a pretty big process over results guy. And I think his process mm-hmm. was very sound because coming into the season, at least in my opinion, the biggest needs were edge pass rusher, uh, a pass catching running back and a cornerback to replace Logan Ryan. He did all that. He drafted Darrington Evans. Christian Fulton and he went out and he signed Clowney and Beasley yes they didn't do anything they sucked they were absolutely terrible and they didn't contribute to the team but the process was perfectly sound the problem was he didn't hit on on any of them yet Evans and Fulton we'll see Clowney and and Beasley obviously not but I can't fault him for actually you know doing the right thing the problem was just none of it worked out and it sucks and yeah, I'm going to blame him because he was the one who picked these guys, but I understand the methodology behind it. Yeah, like I've I've used this analogy in our group chat before, but like Luke, let's say you're a chef and you give me a grocery list and you say, "Okay, look. Okay. I need I, I need hamburger buns, I need ground beef, and I need cheddar cheese." And I say, "Okay, here is exactly the things you asked me for." And then you say, well, I'm making a pizza. This doesn't work. And I'm and I say, well, I gave you the ingredients you asked for. It's your fault that you can't use them correctly. I mean, that's what he did. I mean, they the first round pick thing. Like I said, nobody's defending that. Isaiah Wilson was a bad pick. But first of all, we've also talked about how you know the team is not. I, I don't think at least the team is worse now than it was a year ago. I think its lows are lower, but its highs are much higher. I, I think they have a chance to compete with the best teams in the league much better now with this roster than the one they had last year with a slow Logan Ryan, a bad Jarrell Casey, like the guys that we talked about who are problems. Now, if if you tell me like, okay, this is the cheese I really want. It's the best cheese. And this is, this is clowny just for everybody following along. And, and I said, okay, I get you that cheese. And then you look at it and you're like, well, you know, for whatever reason that, you know, this cheese is not really working. It's not really what I want for this meal. It should have been something else. And then, you know, you blame me for the fact that I gave you what you asked for. That's not my fault. Like I could, it, you know, Robinson gave him a guy who had pro bowls and we knew he was overrated, but he wasn't useless. And he gave Mike Vrabel, that guy, after he specifically asked for him. And then Mike Vrabel looked directly back at John Robinson and said, well, you know, I can only do, I can only work with what I got. And it's like, I'm trying not to cuss as much as I can, which is why I keep stopping. It's, it's like, what do you want me to do in that situation? It's like, I I understand you being mad that like Isaiah Wilson was on the roster. Like I get it. Hands up. My bad, bad pick. I, I, me, Will Lomas has said that a million times. That's that is a bad pick. 
There's no defending that. It's out of character for John Robinson, who's a big football character, production, long-term starter. Like he likes all those things. And Isaiah Wilson was a weird pick at the time. Like it obviously didn't work out and it's not going to work out, but that's one pick. Like the, the Titans drafted Jeffrey Simmons last year. And obviously I'm not, dra- I'm not comparing the two, but Jeffrey Simmons came in with a torn ACL and they didn't expect to get anything from him this year. It, for whatever reason, maybe it's Keith Carter It was, you know, I can make this guy better than he is. You know, he'll be a perfect fit for us. He'll be the long-term replacement for Conklin. I don't know what the thought process was behind Wilson because it was so weird. But for whatever reason, he thought two there, years There wasn't now, one, Will. There wasn't one. Like, that one you just have to chalk up to that was a fail. Yeah, I mean, I guess, but it's not like he was Cause, like— Because that one, oh, there, wasn't the even, like, there wasn't even a justifiable process for that one. That— Right, uh, right. That's this. What I'm saying is like it's it's the same thing as when they drafted Simmons, where they didn't need a defensive tackle. Like Simmons worked because he was he's a high character, like work ethic, like bust my ass, like I'm gonna get on the field and make plays, like and I'm gonna recover from an ACL as quick as humanly possible, like that. He's that kind of guy. So looking back, it's we're glad that we have Jeffrey Simmons on the Titans roster. And I, that's what I'm saying. I have to assume that because Simmons worked out, he thought, well, I'll get this other big guy who my scouts tell me has talent. And everybody in the world says, oh, he's got so much upside and he's so strong, even though I don't think that's what the film showed. But it's not like Robinson went up to a dartboard and just threw like somebody somewhere had to convince him that that was a good pick. Because like I, I said, and like Matias kind of said, that was so different than the methodology he's used on every other pick. You know, it's it's the Kevin Dodd situation all over again. And, you know, maybe one day we'll figure out what it is. But like with Kevin Dodd, it's so much of an outlier to what he what? normally does that, I mean, I, I just, I cannot well, accept that it's a him unilateral decision. Let me say one last thing because we're running out of time. Do we from now on then, whenever an NFL team makes a terrible signing or or a, a bad draft pick, we just excuse it because, well, the process made sense and I see what they were thinking there. I mean, at a certain point, doesn't the standard just have to be success? And I'm not attacking John Robinson's record. I think he's been a great general manager for the Titans. He's resurrected the franchise. But this year just was terrible, and I, I don't understand why we can't just blame him for that and then move on. Yeah, I mean, you do forgive it if 90% of the picks work out and 10% But none of them worked out this offseason. No, but th- you can't take a you can't take two players who got injured in the preseason and one had a hamstring injury like the week before uh the season started and then the other one uh, with Christian Fulton just like was injured on and off like that that's not a talent issue. That is a an unfortunate you know Corey Davis getting hurt his first season is not a talent issue. It's a an unfortunate situation where a guy who was never hurt in college got hurt in the NFL before he could play a game and that when that happens to rookies they rarely recover. Like I I am willing to admit that the pro, that none of the picks and the you know none of the top 100 picks none of the picks at all turned out the way that we hoped they would to start the season. But I cannot get mad at John Robinson for sticking to the same formula that got him. Yeah. Jeffrey Simmons, A.J. Brown, like all, all the other great players he's gotten. And we shouldn't expect him to change that or be mad when it doesn't work 100% of the time. 
Yeah, we've talked we've talked about this before that the draft is such an inexact science, especially when you're drafting quarterbacks. So it's hard for me to to totally, uh, you know, give fault to a general manager when some of the picks just don't go his way. It's really hard to have a consistently high hit rate, especially in the draft. So. I, I just I'm going to continue to have confidence in John Robinson because his track record speaks for itself, uh, particularly in the draft. All right, it's time for Stop the Nonsense as we wrap up this episode. There's still a million things we need to hit on as we wrap up this Titan season. We're going to do all of that next week. But as we end this episode, it's time for Stop the Nonsense. And, I, and I'm going to start because I've got one that I think is pretty fun. It, it, this happened early on, on Tuesday. The uh, Las Vegas Raiders announced that they are hiring former Jacksonville Jaguars head coach Gus Bradley as their new general manager. Good hire. Bradley has a great track record of of success in in calling defensive plays. Here's the problem. Not only in the graphic that they posted on Twitter, but in the graphic that the Raiders sent to their press corps announced in a, in a press release announcing this move, there's a Photoshop of what they thought was Gus Bradley into Raiders gear. Unfortunately, whoever was in charge of this, I assume their uh, graphic design person, uh, put um, Ken Wisenhunt on, on that picture. They took a picture of Ken Wisenhunt and... Uh, uh, put him in Raiders gear and sent that to the media and said, this is our new defensive coordinator. That is a faux pas of all faux pas. Made funnier by the fact that it wasn't just some random coach. It was Ken Wisenhunt, who, you know, the three of us know and love so well. I thought that was hilarious. It was super funny. And even when you sent it, I was, or even when it was in our group chat, I was like, I don't see what's wrong with this picture. Like, I just, like, I saw it, and it just didn't click in my brain because Ken Wisenhunt, when you look directly at him, it's like, oh, you're like, that's, you know, he's got a strong, like, jaw, and he looks like, you know, he looks like a Bill Cower type and all that stuff. But when you're not looking at him every day, his face is completely forgettable. So, like, at the time, I was like, yeah, sure, that works. But I I think the funniest thing about it is imagine you're the Raiders, and you're not firing your head coach. You know, you're not you're not making any massive changes. You have one major signing that you're going to make for the next three months. And something like this. I mean, this is not the Jets when they sign their assistant wide receiver coach putting up a picture. It's like their one big signing all season. So, yeah, that was the funniest part to me. Um, I'll go ahead and uh, do my next. So there uh, this has been a tough week for Titans fans and. The my mentions in Titans Twitter as a whole generally collapsed into itself and basically said, you know, th- this this sucks because the Titans are in such a bad position compared to the Colts who were right there with us all season, and next year they're just going to be so much better because they have so much cap space. So, you know, I, I looked into it, and I'll be honest. At first, I didn't really understand the extent of how bad the Colts situation was. Uh but I knew that Philip Rivers wasn't under contract. And I knew Jacoby Brissett wasn't under contract. So in an off in off, this offseason, they have sixty million dollars to spend in cap space, assuming like a one hundred and eighty million dollar cap. Like that's great. 
especially for how many wins they had. But you look at the t- the positions they don't have filled on their roster right now, and keep in mind this this is for everybody who is saying that that you know the Colts are going to be back to full strength and they're going to be ready to take the division over next year. And this was so sad because this was our one chance to win. This is the starters that they're missing. They've got no quarterback. They've got no left tackle. They've got uh, T.Y. Hilton's gone. So if you want to call him their wide receiver one, he's he's a free agent. Justin Houston and Danico Autry are both uh, free agents, which is both their starting edges. Uh, and both of their starting corners are out in uh, Carey and Xavier Rhodes. And the other guy they have under contract is Rocky Sin, who has a concussion and struggled with that at the end of the season, which is tough on him, but who's also not been a good corner for his entire career. So they're missing three players at corner, essentially, which is a premium position that expensive that is expensive. Two players at edge, which is expensive. Uh, a player at wide receiver, which is expensive. And quarterback and left tackle. They're basically missing the most expensive positions on a roster. And they've got to fill multiple positions at each one of those. So the Colts, and you're going to hear a lot about this over the next four weeks because people aren't going to talk about the downside of it until they actually start looking into free agency. But there's so many people online right now who are saying, oh, the Colts have so much money, wait until they go out and they sign Allen Robinson or something. And it's like, sure, maybe they sign Allen Robinson. But the bigger problem right now is who's going to be their left tackle are they going to have to repay if they're going to have to re-sign or extend Quentin Nelson, who's eligible for a restructure? Are they going to have to do the same thing with Darius Leonard, who's eligible for a restructure? Like that's forgetting all the other holes they have on on offense and defense. So if you're ever seeing these graphs that are like this is what the cap space looks like, and you know these are draft, just know that the Colts are about to be in for a huge reckoning once free agency starts, and when the dust settles, everybody's going to look up and say, "Wow." The Colts roster is not as strong as I thought it was going to be heading into the heading into the regular season. Remember that the people that are telling you now that it's you know that the Colts are going to win the AFC South next year, that is the ultimate nonsense and the ultimate short-sighted I, I guess anger at the at the Titans that that there is out there. So that's my stop the nonsense. Yeah, I, I will not make any predict, predictions for the AFC South for next year. Not right now. I mean, I'm in too much of a fragile state. Uh, so for my stop. Hello. Did we lose Matias? I think I can't hear him either. His soccer team, something bad happened to him, and he just threw the computer across the. Yeah, I didn't think. I didn't Let think Russell Wilson. Oh. Hey, Matias. There we go. Uh, why don't you start over with your stop the nonsense, Matias? You cut out about okay. a few. You disappeared. Ago. Yeah. That was weird. I don't know why that happened. <laughs> anyway, so my stop of the nonsense is uh, is about the Seahawks. Uh, Seahawks fans and writers ha- have had this movement going. Oh dear! How is this happening? It's like and, it's like he's uh, Russell Wilson what? throw the ball more. What's um, going on? I don't, I don't know. know. It's, like, it's like the NSA is like censoring something you're saying. It's like you're about to give out a government secret by accident, and they're just like not letting you record it. <laughs> now? Let's, let's try one more time. 
So my stop the nonsense is about the Seahawks. Uh, Seahawks fans and Seahawks writers have been talking about the let Russ cook movement for for a couple seasons, and, <laughs> and essentially they just want. Does it not work? No, it was working. I was laughing at your take. That's funny. No, we were having issues when I was recording my Stop the Nonsense, so uh, I, I thought we were laughing that I kept having those issues. But anyway, yeah, so this, this movement it, it has gained steam over the past couple of seasons it, because the Seahawks just would not let Russell Wilson open it up and throw the ball, even though he's one of the best quarterbacks in the league and he always has really good weapons, but they were so committed to running the football uh, and writers and analysts and fans just completely hated it. So... This season, they finally did open it up, and they started out as one of the hottest teams in history, at least in terms of efficiency throwing the ball. But then towards the latter half of the season, uh, that efficiency completely dropped. They got back to their ways of, of running the football. They started losing games. They weren't putting up a lot of a lot of points. Uh, and then they end up losing to the Rams in a horrific offensive performance, and uh, Pete Carroll was in a press conference yesterday, and he had this quote, which I thought was absolutely hilarious, and everyone lost their minds over. He said that the primary focus going into 2021 will be to run the football more often and more effectively. Come on, man. And then the funniest part was the day after they fire, they part ways, sorry, they part ways with Brian Schottenheimer, the much maligned offensive coordinator, who everyone assumed was behind this you know run centric type of philosophy but it says there were philosophical differences between schottenheimer and pete carroll so maybe it was schottenheimer actually who wanted to air it out and pete carroll's like no i am gonna go into every game with my five six running backs and i'm just gonna run the ball even though i have russell wilson you gotta let uh gotta let mr unlimited come out isn't that what he called himself it was his, like his alter ego yeah Mr. Oh, Unlimited. Yeah, yes, that was but, it. But <laughs> uh, I, I do love that uh, it, what a massive spiral we went down and like whiplash we had this season in Seattle, which was let Russ cook. He's never gotten an MVP vote. And then we get halfway through the season and then he suddenly makes a nosedive. And it's like, well, maybe let's pull back on yeah. that. <laughs> and, and the one guy who let him cook and was getting all the praise in the first half of the season gets quote unquote like or has quote unquote a disagreement, a, a philosophical, philosophical disagreement with the coaching staff, other coaching staff. So mm. that's a really funny turn of events. All right, that's going to do it for us. We will be back next week for one last episode to round out the 2020 season. Until then, for Will and Matias, I'm Luke reminding you and everyone else in the sports world to stop the nonsense. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.